On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Philip Bunn about technological threats to liberty. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is automated technology? In what ways could automated technology potentially be a threat to liberty? Why do most assume it is an actual creator of liberty rather than a threat to it? And what do figures like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill have to contribute to this discussion? Should we think of efficiency and productivity as the gold standards of liberty? And does efficiency and productivity actually harm our soul? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. So we cover all sorts of topics that range from more theological to more philosophical to political theory and across the spectrum. Though we're probably not going to have episodes on art history, though if there's a great interest in that, maybe there is some reason to do that. But one thing we've tried to do with the podcast, if you're a new listener, is to encourage and cultivate an intellectual culture of sorts. And what we mean by that is just... Some of the things we repeat, the the sort of stuff that we publish, is supposed to encourage things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And so for us, that's a wide range of virtues, uh, and really the main idea behind it is we're supposed to be kind and generous, interested in other people, uh, but we can also hold firmly to what we believe and why we believe it, but we don't have to be jerks about it. So we want to straddle this line of like we want to be really serious about all the arguments that we make and make them as robustly as we can, but we want to be a cheerful bunch about it, and we think that's a good, healthy posture for people. Especially in the Internet age, it seems like everybody's sort of posture is either let's just let everything go or it's let's just bring a knife fight, a knife to every fight, or not every fight, every conversation I have, I've got a knife in my back pocket. I'm ready to stab people. We wanted to like, let's, let's not do the extremes. Let's, let's find somewhere in the middle because we think that's probably more appropriate, the golden mean of some sort. Anyway, I am thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Philip Bunn today. I'll let Philip tell you about himself a little bit, but I'll tell you a couple of things that I know. Um, number one, uh, we're talking about technology stuff. And, you know, by, of course, I met him on the, the Twitter webpage, X, whatever it's called. So for all that we will say bad about technology, there is some cool, mysterious goodness to technology. And one thing I've learned is I like almost all of his tweets. Um, uh, you know, maybe that's just because he, it's clear that he likes being a dad. And he loves books. And so, like, what what better kind of a person could you be if you have those two things? So, Philip, before we jump in, just tell me a little bit about yourself. And then maybe we're talking about your dissertation and, I guess, a potential probably monograph at some point, um, talking about automatic technology, et cetera. Like, what was it that really drew you to that that area? Yeah, so I, uh, in undergrad, I went to Patrick Henry College. I, I took a class on... Uh, modern and contemporary political thought and in that class we read uh, some work specifically on technology so we read uh, Heidegger's question concerning technology and then we read some essays by this guy George Grant who's a Canadian political philosopher so so not the uh, Presbyterian George Grant who's kicking around in the states but an older uh, Canadian George Grant who wrote and thought a lot about technology and its progress at his time uh, and it really challenged some of my like preconceptions about technology the idea that technology is is a neutral tool that we 
get to use however we want. It, it just kind of threw me for a loop. It just changed my life, I think, um, in measurable ways. So from then on, I was just like, well, I really want to think harder and study more about this this technology stuff. And so I did end up going to grad school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and that was my trajectory from then on, just this grant stuff in the back of my head about technology. Uh, and so it just so happened that I ended up at Wisconsin working with some people who were thinking deeply about uh, the the liberal tradition, particularly people thinking through Adam Smith and Tocqueville, for example. And so I ended up sort of getting slotted into that and thinking about technology, you know, through these thinkers that I was being kind of guided through uh, at that stage. So that was sort of where the, this project came. It's been a, it's been a long time coming, I suppose. And you're at the Lyceum Institute at Clemson. Is that yes, right? so the the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism down here in Clemson, South Carolina. Yes, awesome. Are you a Clemson fan at all? Um, I haven't been. I, I I root for them now, but my okay. wife's family has indoctrinated me into being a Tennessee Vols fan. Oh. Her whole family went to the University of Tennessee. So okay, see my my dad and my grandparents they they're from Knoxville. They, my grandparents live in Knoxville, so I've always been uh, a Vols fan. So yeah, so, here I, we go. I, so I've I wear the orange. I'm ready for it. Uh, the the good <laughs> orange, not the not the Clemson orange. Yeah. That's right. Um, so let's let's start at the baseline level when we talk about automated technology. So I think that's the terminology that you used. What are we talking about? Is this, and I, I imagine a lot of people when they hear automated technology, they're probably going to start thinking of things like AI. Yeah. How is that connected to automated technology? Is one a bigger bucket or are they completely separate? Yeah, I, I'd say automated technology is the bigger bucket, and it's really as big as you want to make it. You can kind of fight about the extension of it, but I mean, it's really as old as people have been thinking about politics and, and theory and these issues. There's this um, Greek myth of this uh, uh, sculptor, Daedalus, who made statues that were so lifelike that uh, they'd get up and walk around, right? The, one of these early discussions of what we might think of as like human-like androids or automatons. And, and in Aristotle's politics, he talks about like imagining like Daedalus, like somebody making uh, a loom that weaves itself or a lyre that plays itself. And he's like, well, that's kind of out there. So, you know, we, we live in a world where humans need to use tools. And I read that now and I'm like, wow, he's thinking about, you know, automation and technology. But really you, you see strides in automation. I mean, first like the, the Greeks with like early machines, they're using water to mill things and, and pump things like that's, that's there. But uh, especially in the Renaissance, with the development of clockwork you get these like really cool automatons people make these like clockwork animals and creatures and toys mostly like really complicated fancy fragile for show uh, but people are really experimenting with what we can do with gears and pulleys and levers and stuff but what the word automation came from or was first applied to is sort of industrial era technology that is the kind of machine that has some ability to self-regulate it has you know think like a steam engine with like a pressure release valve right something that can sort of run on its own with minimal human oversight that's what most people think of or are talking about when they start using automation that sort of stuff substitutes for like manual labor usually automatic looms and things like this um ai attempts at least to to substitute for human thinking uh, and, and substitute for human intelligence. Uh, and so it's where we're at now in a fairly rapid span of time, we've gone from AI technologies being sort of pipe dreams to being relatively, you know, simple flowchart like algorithms to being really good at playing certain games like chess 
to now, like I can just get on my computer and type in a prompt and my AI generative technology will write an essay for me. And of course, if you work in education at all, that's quite concerning. Um, so the commonality between all of those is just some sort of substitute for some sort of human function, whether it's manual labor or intellectual labor. Um, and that substitution can be really exciting, right? It's, it's nice that I can I have a dishwasher. It's really nice that I have a washing machine. That kind of automation is great. Uh, but it can also be kind of scary when we start seeing uh, the more nefarious uses of it, I suppose. Is there a nefarious use of automated dishwashers that I'm unaware of? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I, I'm sure you could conceive of one. I'm sure there's a cartoon villain out there that's done something with that. Maybe if I get my Cartesian mindset, I can think of an evil evil villain or demon of some sort that could be doing something bad with it. Um, before I, I jump into like why automated technology might be a potential threat to things like liberty and I want to know in your mind, like, how should we think about defining that terminology of liberty? Because mm -hmm. um, if we're thinking about it, it's a threat to something, I want to know, like, what is really liberty as supposed to be? Yeah, so I, I in my dissertation project, I'm honing in on a particular understanding of liberty. As, as, as you said, there are different ways that we could define this you know you have the classic like positive ne negative liberty distinction um you have people like uh, john winthrop saying you know what what real human christian liberty is is the freedom to do what's right to do what's good what you ought to do there's sorts of you know it's a, it's a contested term is, is something that political theorists like to say um but i'm kind of honing in on one particular view of liberty that's articulated by this philosopher uh, Samuel Fleischacker, contemporary philosopher, still living, um, that he calls a third concept of liberty. So he takes this positive-negative liberty distinction and says, we could maybe kind of split the difference. So the negative liberty folks say, you know, you're free basically when nobody's stepping on you or, or, or stopping you from doing the things you want to do. The positive liberty folks uh, emphasize the sort of uh, equipment or resources you need to achieve your goals, that there's something that enables you to to be free. Uh, Fleischacker's third concept of, concept of liberty is the practice of independent judgment, uh, which means that I have some faculty as a human being to decide things for myself. Um, but that decision capacity is not fully rational and it's not fully um, correct all the time. The cool thing about judgment is it admits of error. So I get to make a judgment, let's say like in a social circumstance, I think this is the right joke to tell. And I throw that joke out there and no one laughs, right? I, my judgment has been judged poor by the people around me. And so I get to revise that going forward. Maybe people's sense of humor doesn't match my own. And so for Fleischacker, really meaningful liberty is the ability to go out in the world and develop that independent judgment, submit my choices to evaluation in a social setting, uh, and then go back and revise it uh, without anybody, you know, forcing me to make particular judgments, but without denying the reality of the social setting. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the concept that I'm working with specifically in this dissertation. That doesn't mean all those other definitions aren't useful in particular contexts. Like obviously we should be concerned if somebody's directly oppressing us, taking away our ability to you know, freely move and things like this. This is just like one particular angle on it. I was really interested in. Yeah. So I, I was reading your dissertation and I found like even the beginning of you really well done. Uh, fascinating. And it hooked me. I'm like, no, dissertations normally don't hook me. <laughs> and there's one line early on, you, you mentioned this idea of the ever expanding technological universe promises a corresponding expansion of individual choice, but paradoxically leaves participants in our new technological age without the means or faculties to exercise meaningful choice. And that seems to really be like the, like, let's set up the whole argument here. So as I think about that, what ways is automatic technology potentially a threat 
to liberty rather than a liberator. Yeah, I I phrase it that way because I think we do have this intuition that technology is kind of liberating. And in a sense, it is, right? We all feel this, that like I have the freedom uh, in a meaningful sense to talk to you, to learn from somebody who I've never met in person, to, to read books that I couldn't get my hands on physically, to, to experience things that I never would have otherwise without these technologies. What I'm trying to hone in on is a, a particular way that we might be concerned uh, about technology, robbing us of a freedom, less overtly let's say than like you know chinese social surveillance state right that feels very overt that feels unfree i'm concerned maybe with the fact that our technology could deprive us of the opportunity to develop our judgment and then sort of subtly deprive us of the actual ability to make meaningful choices so we feel like we're making meaningful choices but we aren't and when we do make choices they're not really being submitted to that kind of criticism and feedback that's so necessary to develop that that independence so we get kind of the illusion of choice uh, and we get trained into a kind of dependence that i think most of us should be kind of concerned about yeah so I think early on as well, you're talking about the ideas of efficiency and productivity mm-hmm. as sort of um, things that can potentially become sort of a gold standard for what we think about liberty. I mean, I think about even my own day job and the enthusiasm and the, the, the push for let, let's automate as much as we possibly can and get these things off of people's plates and there's a sense in which if you do that, then you're free to do other stuff mm. that's like more valuable. But is there a potential worry that's lurking there when we start doing that over and over again? Yeah. So I, I see the value in that very strongly. So I'm trying to keep like a pulse on these new AI tools that are coming out. And of course, there are bad ways to use things like chat GPT. You know, my undergrads, if they're listening, don't use it to write your essay. Right. But there are other related AI tools or tools that are piggybacking off of GPT that are really, really useful. There's one called Elicit that I've been using that's a sort of research tool uh, where unlike ChatGPT that makes things up, you can put in pretty broad research parameters and it'll pull really relevant papers that are real, that exist. It'll summarize them for you. It'll give you something maybe even more meaningful than the abstract. It'll show you where to find it. And I tested it out on a few of my old research projects and it found papers that I had missed or it found you know exactly the papers I thought it should have been finding or it, it found things that I never would have looked at in fields I wouldn't have looked at. That kind of stuff is great because it is efficient, right? I don't have to spend hours trolling through Google Scholar. I don't have to um, you know pull all the old records of physical journals. That's a really, really useful thing. And, and it does. It lets me use my time in in better ways. But I think we have a tendency um, many times to put things like efficiency and productivity uh, up as ends or goals uh, without realizing they're sort of tools that need to be used towards the proper goals. So I think it's pretty straightforward to think of like really bad times. Times is bad to be efficient, right? You know, some of the most efficient exterminators in human history were the Nazis, right? We have conspiracies sometimes about how many people the Nazis killed because they were so good at killing people. That was really efficient. So we can lose sight of that, I think. That's obviously, you know, an extreme example. But if we lionize our productive output, uh, we tend to I think diminish the more important things. Uh, And of course, there are things in our lives that I think are explicitly inefficient and unproductive, like prayer and meditation and, you know, slow food cooking, spending time with family. These things serve goods other than efficiency and productivity that are so important that I think we might be tempted to lose sight of. So productivity in certain realms will help me pursue those goals 
for sure. Uh, I think we just often get our wires crossed or get our goals confused if we're not careful. So now I'm going to ask for like practical advice here when I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to anyway. And you can tell me you don't have any advice if you want. But telling people that, hey, there are things that are good that to, to not be efficient at seems like that's a tough sell. How do we convince people that there are goods on the other end of this that are only achieved through an inefficient means? I I always want to kind of appeal to the things that I think people already truly believe. And so I think like we see this now in the sort of revival of uh, arts and crafts kind of things, you know, custom, uh, locally produced, locally grown sort of that sort of movement, I think shows a lot of people that there's there's value uh, in the inefficient, right? Instead of going to the cheapest grocery store, I might spend a day at the farmer's market. I did this recently, actually. And, you know, I ran into two or three people I hadn't seen in a long time. And we spent a day together and had lunch together. And, you know, these sorts of chance encounters that you miss when you're trying to streamline and life hack, um, I, I think, <clears throat> are, are so valuable in a way that most most people recognize but often miss. So I'd want to, like, try to grab onto the things that they might find appealing. Of course, there are certain groups of people that I, I, don't, even, I don't even know how to talk to. There are people who are just full-on rational systematizers who this just doesn't even make sense to them they you know they want to streamline all of their meals they drink you know huel or soylent or whatever and you know strip away all of the beautiful things in life and um i don't know what to do for them except just expose them to beauty which i think is always inherently somewhat inefficient or unproductive (laughs) i like it Um, (laughs) it's just awesome um as i think about efficiency and productivity Focusing on that again, is there are there ways that that is harmful to us? And I, I think you mentioned use the terminology of soul. I don't remember if you're using that in a distinctively like metaphysical sense or more of like a just colloquial, you know, you're just your mental life sort of thing. Either way, I'm interested. How is this potentially harmful to us? Yeah, um, and this goes to some broader uh, concerns I have with the technological habits we develop. But um, I think if we pursue the efficient or the productive at the expense of the things that matter more, that is going to have downstream consequences on, um, yeah, let's say in the most basic sense, just our character, who we are and how we act. And then, yeah, I would say even our our eternal soul, right? So I could maximize my productivity as a scholar uh, or a teacher by really ramping up the time that I read and write, I could reduce my time with my family. I could churn out kind of countless projects. I could squeeze my writing at every spare second. Maybe I could start uh, attending online church, right? The commute time to church, that takes a while. Long sermons, those are boring. I can skip all the singing, right? I just need the sermon, the Bible. That's all that matters, right? So by productivity metrics, I think I could sacrifice what much of what we, I think, rightly consider to be more important uh, and meaningful. And in the same way, if I treat things like my um, my prayer or life or my, my study of scripture as like an efficiency checklist. Like how quickly can I get through the Bible? How quickly can I get through this commentary? Uh, I think I've missed the point, right? I think I'm doing some, some real harm to myself in terms of my attention span, my ability to just be, you know, quiet and still with my thoughts, with God, with my family. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I can see, I think some measurable harms there. So you mentioned the terminology of, you know, focusing on the things that matter more, And that's part of the reason that I think efficiency isn't always the right way to think about it. At a national scale, I mean, you're doing politics. 
how is it possible to get people to recognize what matters more anymore? Because mm. to me, it seems like we're, we are at a point in our own culture's moment or whatever where there's no shared, I guess, idea of what matters more. And so then that makes it even more confusing and difficult to try to wade through these sort of discussions. Yeah, I think that sort of pursuit almost always has to happen um, at the small level first, at the local level first, at, at the family level first, right? So I can kind of put this into practice in my own family life, right? If I if I sort of speed through bedtime, punt my child off to bed rather than, you know, taking some time, wind down, maybe read scripture, maybe pray, those are two different lives and habits that I can build up. Same with my church life. If I just, you know, go to church, leave as quickly as possible, don't actually participate in the community, don't get to know people there, don't join a church maybe even, right? I lose all of those things as well. So I think it's things that have to start on the level of like, what decisions am I making day to day? My wife and I are reading this book right now um, called The Common Rule, uh, which is really excellent. Uh, it's it's by a Christian and he's sort of developing his own, um, you know, rule of life like the old you know benedictine ruler augustine rule and uh, augustinian rule and and saying like self-examining like what things am i putting before what what habits am i forming uh, and he gives some really actionable like four daily habits four weekly habits that you can implement that sort of thing i think could be useful and helpful um i don't know you know i, I don't think i could ever uh convince or persuade people on a sort of national scale uh i think that this yeah it sort of happens small and then grows out of there um so there's there's another book as well called um dedicated by Pete Davis. Uh, I'm looking up at my shelf trying to remember what it's called, but uh, the subtitle is something like The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And so there's a whole genre of these books that are basically just asking you to self-reflect on day-to-day what choices are you making, uh, and then looking around you at the community you're building, how could you do better on that as well? I think it starts there and builds up uh, most effectively. That's persuasive. So tell me a little bit about your conversation partners how how do Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, and these other guys impact how you're thinking about this? What are they contributing to the discussion? Are they disagreeing with what you say and and that's how it's spurring you on? Or are they making unique contributions that you're leveraging? Yeah, I'll just say for in terms of just like pure practicality, if anybody, if any of the audience does go to grad school or is in grad school, you'll find if you do any sort of like historical work, political work, theological work, uh, a lot of times you'll find the thinkers that you're focusing on um, are sort of friends of convenience. You might uh, land on them in a course. You might land on them because your advisor knows these people well and is able to walk you through them. Um, A lot of times it's not like I've just found someone who I think has all of the right answers on everything. It's, it's, I've, I've, you know, circumstances are such that these people sort of landed uh, in my lap. And when you get to the defending your proposal or your dissertation phase, one of the most annoying questions is to justify your thinker selection if you're doing historical work. And the real answer for everyone is, I don't know, I just thought they were neat. But no, they don't accept that answer. So you have to have better answers. Um, So part of it is convenience, right? I was studying these people in courses. These are the scholars that my uh, professors were working with. But part of it was I did kind of see what I thought was a kind of was an interesting story. So they're all working in the early industrial or for Adam Smith, just pre-industrial era. 
wrestling with new technological progress, new economic progress, and what it's going to look like in terms of politics and economics going forward. Uh, and all three of them have a concern with some kind of liberty. They're all very concerned about what the world looks like in a future where certain things are not addressed. Uh, and so Adam Smith, uh, you know, has the reputation as the sort of like monocle wearing capitalist, but he's very concerned about the moral character of the working class. Tocqueville is very concerned about the possibility that the future looks more like equality in servitude than equality in liberty. And John Stuart Mill, of course, is very famous for writing on liberty. Yes, he's utilitarian, but he thinks that liberty really, really matters. And so all of them are kind of in conversation with each other. Tocqueville and John Stuart Mill wrote letters back and forth. All, both of them were reading Adam Smith. They're all wrestling with similar questions about new machine technology. Uh, and so I just found this kind of interesting thread of they weren't particularly concerned with the sort of big tech totalitarian questions that we wrestle with now. They were concerned with what these advancements did to the uh, mental life, let's say, of the person using machines or living in a new machine industrial era. Uh, and I think they had some really good insights there that we've maybe kind of lost that I'm trying to like stretch forward and apply to our current conversations. Because I think to the extent that they are right about the things that machines do to us, the machines we have now are worse in, in many ways where before it was, you know, yeah, if you work in a factory, that might be a really boring job and you become mentally mutilated as Adam Smith says. Now we're all using these things, right? We're staring at these things all day. And if there are bad things that are happening to us psychologically, it's far more pervasive than factory work ever was. So. Hey friend, are you a loyal listener to the London Lyceum? If you are, we really appreciate you, but we wanted to make sure you knew about our exclusive content option for the podcast. If you want, for just $5 a month, you can get access to all Kiffin's Keep episodes, Genuinely Particular, Typology by Immersion, and The Hanover House, and any of our other exclusive content that we produce. And all the episodes will be right there in your normal feed. So go ahead and click the link in the show description, and you can sign up today. We appreciate you. So would you say if if our phones or things like that are doing bad stuff to us, do we just get rid of them? What, what, what's the solution here? Yeah, uh, solutions are always hard. Um, getting rid of them may not be the worst idea. That's one of my, my my undergrad advisor has strongly recommended that all of his students do as he has done and get a dumb phone again, if possible. Um, I, I don't think that's a bad advice, but it's advice that I haven't taken. I, I, by the way, don't pretend to be an exemplar in my technological habits. You've seen how much I tweet, right? So I'm a victim <laughs> uh, of this as much as I am a critic. I am, I, I would say in many ways in my tech criticism at least i hope not in my spiritual life but at least in my tech criticism i'm a raging hypocrite sometimes um but i i do think there are there's an argument to be made for uh either getting rid of your smartphone or at least seriously assessing your relationship to it uh so in this uh book the common rule one of the suggestions he has is go a period of time with all of your notifications turned off. Just see how it feels. It's going to be very stressful and it's going to suck. And then see which ones you might need, actually need to turn back on, you know, to stay in touch with family, to stay in touch with particular friends. Um, but do you really need to see every like on your tweet? Do you really need to see every direct message or everything that comes through? Probably not, right? And then, and then do this sort of process of questioning, you know, why am I looking at my phone first thing in the morning? There's nothing important there for me right now. So one of his habits that he suggests is, you know, scripture before phone. Um, 
or there's this other book called the the TechWise Family. The author of that says, you know, phone goes to bed before you do, right? Put it away at some point. Have periods of your day in your life where you're separate from these things. And as you do that, uh, it becomes easier and easier, and you realize how much of your life was being taken up by these things that are literally designed to, to suck in your your soul and your attention as much as possible. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I I don't know why I didn't realize that iPhones had the, like that do not disturb thing. Yeah. I, I've realized this with the birth of our third child so that I could, like, I would very much realize when my wife was texting me <laughs> <laughs> and not get confused by other notifications. And I have not turned it back on or turned my phone back on since then. Yeah. And I really like it that way. So uh, I think that's good advice in my, my own opinion. Now, given the advance of these automated technologies, it seems like they're almost really overtaking our lives at this point. Whereas, you know, in times past, automatic technologies, maybe they have some issues, but they're not like so pervasive in every aspect. Where now it seems like I can't go anywhere or do anything without being needing one of these tools of some sort. Is there any way to go back or is it even worth going back? Is it just now figure out how to live with it? Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to be, you know, say anything that gets your podcast on a watch list. Right. But, you know, you have solutions all, that range from the extreme, right? The the Ted Kaczynski types or maybe less controversial. Right. We could think like actual Luddites, you know, going out and smashing the machines. That's one extreme. Um, that is something that seems, you know, completely impossible now, right? To be a Luddite in an industrial era where I could literally smash the loom that took my job, that's one thing. Uh, but everything is in the cloud now, right? I can smash my computers. I can't go take down Amazon Web Services. So that doesn't seem, you know, that seems like a, a meme uh, at best. So uh, I, I don't, that doesn't fill me with dread. <laughs> um, I think it refocuses the issue for me. Uh, so to what we were talking about before, I think it says, okay, there are limits as a human being to my ability to solve these problems, but can I confront, uh, like, can I view this as an, a really incredible opportunity to confront myself and my habits, you know, my, maybe my sin in relation to my own technology, my relationship with technology? Can I work with my family, my friends, and my community to develop virtuous habits relating to technology? So there's two analogies I use at the end of the dissertation that I um, I, th I found really helpful. And I when I tell them to people, they seem to find them helpful as well. They're both from uh, Werner Heisenberg, who's a physicist. Uh, you've seen him if you've watched the new Oppenheimer movie. Uh, but he is somebody who thought really deeply about uh, technology. He was also a Christian. Uh, and so he has these two analogies in his book, Physicist Con Conception of Nature. The first one is... Uh, uh, analogizing technology to an arrow fired from a bow. And so he says the products of our scientific progress have a direction. They're like an arrow that's been fired. It was fired in a particular direction. It has a tendency, a target, an aim that was set by the person who set it off. It can be redirected by a stronger force, but it has a direction or a tendency determined by who aimed it. So that goes back to the George Grant thing I was talking about at the beginning. I've been thoroughly convinced by this point that the standard line that, well, technology is a neutral tool is just really not true. It sort of undermines the tendencies that are baked into these things that I think we must be aware of if we're going to use them well. So that analogy of like, this is a thing with a direction and in order to use it well, I have to know what that direction is. What tendency is this thing pushing me towards? Is it towards healthy habits? Usually not. Um, the second analogy that may even be better in some ways, he says, is like the situation we find ourselves in morally, politically, technologically 
technologically is like if you stepped onto a modern battleship with an old-fashioned magnetized compass, right? The compass would be off by who knows how many orders of magnitude. It might be spinning in circles. You could never navigate with it as long as that was happening. But if you realize where the interference is coming from and you can correct for it, maybe even develop new navigation tools, uh, then you might be able to correct for it and navigate properly. So I think addressing the situation we find ourselves in doesn't, you know, we can't, let's let's say if our tech situation is the battleship, we can't dismantle the battleship, uh, but we could perhaps develop better navigational techniques in light of our situation on the battleship. So uh, that, that change, the changes we could make could be a new compass to guide our habits. I think both of those analogies have been really helpful for me in some ways, yeah. So given the growth of automated technology, is there a sense in which there is a greater premium on sort of humanities-oriented education than there is more of the STEM-oriented education? That is a really interesting question, and I'm not—I don't feel confident uh, giving an answer yet because it wasn't, you know, six months a year ago when the public-facing AI image generators were still just so sincerely goofy um, that, you know, it was easy to dismiss, right? Everybody suggested at the time, well, yeah, look how far behind it is. Of course, like, it's doing cool stuff, but, like, it's never going to match a human artist. And then within the space of a, you know, uh, not even a 1.0 update, but a 0.1 update, some of these AI image generators like Midjourney became just orders of magnitude more impressive, right? So to the extent that there are reports now of like certain publishing companies using them for like illustration of mass-produced books, sort of cutting out the opportunities for artists to develop and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I'm not entirely sure. I want to say, as somebody who spends most of his time like reading and interpreting old texts by old dead people, um, that there's no way a computer could do this in a way that's satisfying to us. Um, I, I think that that's true, but man, I've, I've tested some of the, some of the GPT essays with some prompting and it, it can do a pretty good job of at least at a maybe college sophomore level explaining some of the texts I'm interested in. Um, so I think it's difficult to say, Um, I think what will inevitably happen is in art, in writing, in uh, any sort of creative or productive output work, I think we're going to see a development of a call it like a luxury market of of human sourced products that, uh, you know, certified human, no AI origin. You know, we do that with coffee and all chocolate and all of this. I think that's going to be a, a niche that might get filled eventually, just like there are people now who are willing to go down to the farmer's market and spend $60 on a cutting board instead of going to Target and getting something that looks similar for less. I think there's going to be people who are willing to pay more for the kind of people who can write a novel that they wrote that a computer didn't. Um, so, um, yeah, I I want to say yes, of course. Like the the humanities are always going to be around, and they're going to be different. And you know, it can't make movies, and it can't do good analysis. But uh, you know, I <laughs> I don't feel confident in any of my predictions anymore. <laughs> well, I I guess I I want to say the humanities are more important too. Um, and it seems to me. So I mean, tell me if my my thinking here is is off. But is there a sense in which if we automate so much stuff? there is a greater premium on the just more artistic skills of critical thinking compared to more the hard, like, well, I know how to code stuff 
well, that's that can become a little bit more obsolete than the ability to think critically and imaginatively would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is really interesting how quickly um, these tools were able now to generate like fairly usable code. The people that I know who do more of that, you know, are able to use it to streamline and make more productive their workflow. Um, so I. Yeah, I, I want to say I, I'm, I think I'm somewhat skeptical still in the sense that. I think now or in the near future, these tools will be able to produce, um, let's say, artistic looking things that will be perfectly satisfactory to most people. Uh, So I think in the very near future, we're going to have, you know, AI movies and AI novels and everything else that consumers won't have a problem with. Whether or not a person with well-cultivated moral imagination and taste will be able to discern the difference, um, I might separate me from the optimists in this realm. I want to be able to say that, no, actually, somebody who knows the true, the good, and the beautiful can pick out the bad from the good just like they can now, right? In a world of bad mass-produced books, whether they're human or AI, hopefully people can develop and cultivate taste that distinguishes the good from the bad, Um that's my hope, but it's a cautious one, I suppose. So tell me this. If, I mean, if AI or, or just automated technology in general has the power to do all this stuff in the future, let's say, you know, a year or two, people begin to be displaced from their jobs, et cetera. Is there any sort of moral imperative for the civil government to enact sort of restrictions of some sort on these things? Or is it total free market, do your thing? Because, I mean, how are we supposed to tell you that you can't develop technology? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's a range of thought on this, right? On the one side, you have people like um, Adam Thierer. He was at Mercatus Center. I'm not sure where he is now, but I've, I've called him sometimes jokingly. I don't think he knows I exist, but like my uh, intellectual rival because he has this book called Permissionless Innovation. And that's sort of his line, right, is that, you know, when we assume we know more than we do and we try to use the state to step in and squelch some sort of new developing sector, we're causing more harm than good. We could never possibly anticipate what what happened in just the past year, two years, 10 years, 20 years. So why would we attempt to like regulate and stymie it with, with um, policies that intentionally prevent that kind of progress? On the other end, there was a clip that went around a few months ago of an interview between uh, Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro, where Ben Shapiro was sort of taking the economic libertarian line and saying, well, what, are you going to use the government to stop self-driving trucks from going on the road to save the jobs of however many million truckers? Tucker Carlson was like, in a second, in a second, of course I would. Like, duh, it's not even a question. Um, I, I, I'm at war with myself on this because I've had like a good, um, you know, market libertarian upbringing. Uh but also my skepticism is high. So I think I lean towards the Tucker side of that, of that argument, but I'm not sure I'm not a policy person. I'm more a history of political thought person. And so I don't know that I could confidently say like, here's the policy that will uh, limit potential harms or, or or potential goods that could be done by this automation that we're squelching Um, here. I'm, I'm so confident that this is the policy that would solve the issue without creating worse issues. I I don't know that I could name it. Uh, And so that's the, I think the corner that I back myself into on that. Yeah. So on a historical point, would you say, is there any particular policy or multiple policies in general that have been detrimental as far as anything related to automated technology goes over the last several hundred years? Hmm. Um, that's a great question. Um, in terms of permissiveness or in terms of either one, stopping, I, I'm just interested. Hmm. 
I I think that um I I would think of um a lack of policy is something of a policy choice and I think there was a sort of uh rapid uh introduction of new predictive technologies in certain fields that may that there are questions of like justice that that matter for them um so in things like policing and things like the justice system um that or or even i'd say even in in medicine this is one of the examples i use in the dissertation of like what sort of world are we developing where we have a slew of medical professionals who are never taught to trust their own judgment or develop their own judgment they rely on you know what the diagnostic computer tells them um i think things like that can be quite bad actually the, the one example that i think of is you know it's a negative policy a lack of a policy um, is I'd have to go look at the details, but, um, it's, it was a, the introduction of a predictive technology in, um, Medicare coverage that I think ended up classing out whole groups of people or making their premiums ridiculously expensive or something along these lines. I need to go find details on this now. Um, but yeah, I think I, I, because of my skepticism would want to point more at, uh, areas where we didn't have a positive idea of how to use these things. And so the permission was there and then maybe it went badly. Um, but I, I don't know that I have any like silver bullet examples off the top of my head. Oh, that's cool. So tell me a little bit about how Christians in general should be thinking about these topics, especially, and I'm especially interested. So just, you know, Christians in general, but also, advice for pastors who are navigating some of these issues and questions that they're having to think about. How do I make sure to lead my people well, to teach them and to, to keep them from, you know, just traditional categories of sin? Yeah. Um, I don't say this often, but I think this is one area where, um, and Christians could maybe learn something from John Stuart Mill, um, you know, famously not uh, a wildly pro-Christian guy. Uh, but Mill was very concerned with what he calls um, the imposition of systems of goods. Like He's concerned with the idea that somebody else's way of life or idea of what the best life is could be imposed on a free individual through things like dogma, custom, policy, whatever. Um, and so obviously as like confessional Christians, there are things that we can't get on board with about this, right? We, we, we think that there are things that we can legitimately receive from authorities that we ought to believe. So we can't jump on board with this all the way, but I think he's hitting on something that um, Christians would do well to think about, which is that we can be sort of unwitting recipients of systems of goods or ways of thinking or values through kind of a variety of avenues. And I think one of them is technology. And we can sort of unthinkingly adopt um, worldly ways of thinking imposed on us by I mean, we, Christians are very famous for talking about this way about uh, our, our entertainment, right? The, the things that we get from from Hollywood or the TV shows. I think it's just as true, uh, more true even in some ways of our of our technology. What are we being taught to value, to prioritize when we view the world through the lens of Twitter or Facebook or what have you? Um, so I think it would be good for Christians or pastors counseling Christians to think or consider like um, what is the source of the beliefs that the people in their congregation might have? Like what is the source of the systems of goods that they're getting? Is it from Silicon Valley and the people, you know, that their cronies that they're imposing on us? Um, and I think it would be very good for Christians to do more serious reflection on the, the habits that our technologies inculcate in us and how, how defined we are by those habits. Um, so, you know, uh, 
I've just been teaching Aristotle in my intro political theory class. And so Aristotle says, you know, we're formed in our character by our repeated ap- actions that habituate us towards virtue or vice. And so there's this philosopher, Will Durant, who famously summarized that sometimes gets quoted as Aristotle, but he says, you know, we are what we repeatedly do. Um, and uh, obviously there's, you know, Christian lines of what we can accept from Aristotle and not, but I think that's true in in many ways um and also um another ironic author to recommend to christians uh as he was a socialist atheist but kurt vonnegut also took that a step further and said uh we are what we pretend to be and so i think tech gives us avenues to pretend to be lots of things we put on a face in our social media environments and that gives us opportunities i think to develop like really sinful habits i think twitter uh, or any social media right incentivizes us to to rage and bicker and gossip and slander and do all of these things that um paul is concerned with in the church that we we should probably be just as aware of um i mean so this is a probably a terrible anecdote but like just the other day um sunday i was walking back from from taking communion at church and i saw people who had already gone through and received back in the pews who had like as soon as they sat down pulled out their phones because it was like okay well i've taken communion you know the best part's over um better check my notifications (laughs) right fantasy football's going you know and and then i sat down and i had this like itch i was like oh maybe i have some notifications you know and so i think those sorts of habits like keep us captive and they, they can certainly be a detriment to our to our walk with God and, and should concern us. So, um, yeah, I think there are people who are thinking really well about this. Like I mentioned, the, the Common Rule book is really excellent on this. There's um, I have this book um, edited by by Jason Thacker um, called The Digital Public Square, Christian Ethics in a Technological Society. I think there are some people who are doing really deep thinking on this from a uniquely Christian framework that are really useful. Uh, but then also just like secular academic work like uh, Shannon Valor has a book called uh, Technology and the Virtues that hits on a lot of this stuff that I think is is just as useful for us from a, from a Christian frame. Yeah. Okay. So now we've got that. I, I want to know before we wrap up, you've got a website, philipdbunn.com. Tell me a little bit about your future work, what you're interested in, what your plans are, those sort of things. Yeah. So um, I'm Right now, I'm applying for academic jobs. The dream of everybody who gets a PhD is to go find a tenure track job somewhere. So I'm I'm hunting down jobs and teaching you know, the history of political thought, and hopefully someone will pay me full time forever to talk about uh, technology and politics. But right now, I'm working on um, a set of projects, like working on the dissertation, turning that into a book. I have a project right now on uh, Calvin and uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which I'm really excited about, uh, on their disagreements over the method of catechism as a legitimate form of education for children. Um, But also just you can find on my website, I'm occasionally blogging on Substack. uh, And so I kind of keep track of my reading there and have some occasional essays and thoughts. So um, all of this stuff and more is the kind of stuff that occupies my brain for the most part. Well, I'll tell you, the the Calvin... uh, idea i mean that's fascinating so now i just need to like have you as a regular guest anything you're writing we could talk about it whether it's you've got that you wrote that short little essay for us on in defensive libraries which i loved uh so i'm pretty oh, much i'm a fanboy i guess is what you would say <laughs> i appreciate it um if if you were to make a recommendation let's say because we've got quite a few listeners who are in the bucket of um their sort of vocational ministry of some sort, or they're interested in that, what political theorists should they be reading to help them? Political theorist. I, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. I just, I think that uh, George Parkin Grant is really 
understudied. He's a Christian thinker. He's very interesting in his politics. He's very influential in what Canadians call red Toryism, uh, a weird strain of what Americans might call conservative thought, but not really. But also he, um, he, he wrote a lot, especially with his wife, on ethics of life, particularly euthanasia uh, in ways that I think were very prescient. So if you're thinking at all about like bioethics and new medical technology and things that are going on in Canada, Grant is a great resource for, for tech, for politics, for Christian theory. I, I think he's just kind of excellent across the board. So yeah, he has a book. Um, I think the best intro would be a, an essay collection called Technology, technology and Justice. Uh, has some has some very good essays that would sort of like dip your toe in those. Excellent. Well, this has been tremendous. Uh, everybody who's been tuning in, what I need to tell you guys, go uh, find Philip on Twitter and follow him there. Uh, bookmark his website. And if you are hiring a history of political thought, then you know who to talk to. Now you've got your best candidate here. So everybody, check out Philip. Follow along. Read his stuff as it comes out. And once this dissertation becomes a book, I will make sure to tell people to go buy it so that you can get a couple of sales beyond just the library sales. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, if you, if you go through traditional academic publishers these days, it's like, okay, we're going to sell it to a library. And by the way, you're not going to get paid for the first however many hundred copies, but it's necessary for the CV. So, yep. you know, it's... it's Got to do it. It is what it is, I guess. So <laughs> I'll tell people to buy it, though. I that's, appreciate that. That's my that. main thing. So check it out. If you're listening to this way in the future, we're recording this in 2023... If you're listening to this in 2025 it's I, I or 2026 i imagine it's there somewhere so go buy it find well, it I i'll try so. to remember to come put the link in the show notes i forget that some i tell people in the future in these episodes in the past uh, i'm getting all time wizard stuff on you now but i'll tell people i'll put the link in whenever it comes out and then i forget so just go find it google it if it's not there that's my main point anyway thanks everybody for tuning in to the only analytic baptist confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.